There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Orla Doyle. Orla is Associate Professor in the UCD School of Economics and a Research Fellow at the Geary Institute at UCD also. Orla specialises in the economics of human development, particularly on early intervention. Orla has led some exciting research projects evaluating the effectiveness of early childhood intervention programmes. So Orla takes us through the importance of early childhood development on skill formation later in life. In doing so, Orla has a few tips for any parents out there arising from her work. Alongside that, we discuss the impact that the 2008 recession had on health and well-being through the lens of a study on maternal health. There are a few lessons to be learned when it comes to the current COVID-19 crisis and Orla takes us through those as well. Increasing inequality is something we think about a lot nowadays, even before COVID-19, but increasing educational inequality was something that was not on my radar. Orla also has done some important work in relation to this and takes us through some issues that we need to plan for when fighting COVID-19. And finally, to borrow the famous Monty Python phrase, we wrap up with something completely different as Orla takes us through her study of the impact terrorism may have on well-being. Okay, so Orla kicks off the discussion by taking us through how she got interested in this field of work in the first place. Well, my main area of work has the rather grandiose title of the economics of human development. But basically, it's about how we can try to reduce social inequalities in children's skills and ability through early intervention programmes. So we know that children from poorer backgrounds have, at least on average, they have poorer educational outcomes. They also tend to have poorer socio-emotional skills and poorer health. And we know these inequalities can partly be explained by differences in the types of environments that children are exposed to. So we know that children living in more disadvantaged homes typically have access to poor nutrition. They're exposed to more stress. Their parents tend to provide them with less what we call academic stimulation. And there's a whole body of research out there that shows that living in these disadvantaged circumstances early in life is associated with poor outcomes later in life, like poor labour market opportunities, increased crime, and poor well-being or mental health, more mental health problems. So what my work really tries to do is understand whether we can improve children's life outcomes by modifying and improving the environment which they've been exposed to. And much of this work, at least within economics, has been pioneered by Professor James Heckman from the University of Chicago, whom I've been working with for the last 14 years now. And I suppose this is very, this was a really big departure from my from my original PhD work, which was somewhat obscurely on voting behaviour in Central and Eastern Europe. So I was interested in how people make decisions about who to vote for after living under communism for 40 years. But then in, I think it was 2004, I became a postdoc in the Geary Institute in University College Dublin, 
And I started working with labor economists like uh, Kevin Denny and Colin Harmon, and we were working on cohort studies, um, looking at how kind of early life conditions affect later economic outcomes. But also during this time, Professor Heckman became an adjunct professor in UCD to advise on a whole suite of new early childhood intervention programs that were being funded by Atlantic Philanthropies and the Department of Children and Youth Affairs. And I was asked if I wanted to work with Heckman on this project. And as a young economist, you know, I really couldn't turn down the opportunity to work with a Nobel Prize winner, even though it meant completely transforming my research agenda. So, you know, it was a real risk. And I remember a really surreal afternoon in the Chicago Zoo with Heckman, where he was warning me about the risks of running an experimental early childhood program, because the payoffs in terms of publications are so distant, right? Because you've got to wait till the children receive the intervention, um, you know, until they grow up, essentially, to see if the program works in terms of their economic outcomes. But all the work has to be done immediately today. So you really can't publish in the short term. And this was very risky for someone so early uh, in, in you know, my academic career. And um, but Heckman, he's famous for a lot of early intervention studies, isn't that right? Yeah, Heckman really pioneered this area of economics of human development. He's been involved in a range of experimental early childhood intervention programs, mainly in the U.S., also more recently in Jamaica as well. And he really, in this field of economics, is the one who's pioneered this, this area of research. And I've been lucky enough to work with him, as I said, for the last 14 years. Okay. Um, so it was about in 2007, um, you know, working with Professor Heckman, I found myself winning a one euro million, uh, sorry, a one euro million tender to conduct a field experiment of a new early childhood intervention program that was being conducted by the Northside Partnership. Um, I was only two years out of my PhD. I'd never run a randomized control trial before. I'd never managed a research team before, but suddenly I just had to do it. So. You know, the first few years were incredibly stressful. Um, I was hyper-conscious of not wanting to make a mistake. So looking back, I think I just applied an incredibly rigorous approach to the study. And even though I didn't know it at the time, I think that's why our study on preparing for life is considered one of the strongest in the field. Wow, no, that's, uh, that's a huge undertaking at that stage. And so had you decided on, on the structure at that stage or was it just a case of, right, now we have to figure out how to design the study and all the elements of, of a randomized control trial that go with it. How did that sort of the plan of the, the, the trial come about? How was that formulated? Well, the program itself, in terms of the actual intervention, was designed and run by the Northside Partnership in one of the most disadvantaged communities in Dublin. And what was interesting about the program, it was that it was developed in a bottom up fashion. So 28 different community groups, service providers, parent representatives all came together to develop the program to meet the needs of the family in that particular community. And at that time in this community, there were really high rates of early school leaving, high rates of unemployment, high rates of crime, social welfare dependency. And we conduct, went in and conducted a survey of all the four-year-olds when they were starting school. And we found that they were really scoring below average in terms of their cognitive skills, their language ability, their health and their socio-emotional skills. So even before these children started school, they were lagging so far behind their peers that despite huge investments um, in these desk schools in this community, that these kids never caught up. They were always lagging behind. So it was decided that if you really want to improve children's outcomes, you really have to start working with parents much earlier in the life cycle. And this led to the Preparing for Life program. So that while the program itself is run by the Northside Partnership, it was my job and my, and my team's job to run the evaluation of the program. And we had a lot of leeway in how that the randomized control trial would look, how we would recruit the sample, what types of data that we would collect, and so on. 
So essentially, there's this kind of separation between the research team and the implement implementation team. But we really did have to work very closely together um, to ensure the success of the program. And that's what we did. I know from my own experience, when you get a piece of data, it's always a case of, well, how do we correct for all the sort of the biases that might be introduced? Whereas it sounds like in your case, you were able to control for that from day one. Yes. So starting in 2008, we re recruited pregnant women and we randomly assigned them to what we call a high treatment group or a low treatment group. So essentially preparing for life is what we call a dosage experiment. All families receive some treatments that they wouldn't otherwise be received. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. But we just vary the intensity of the two, but it's still, if you like, a randomized control trial. So by randomly assigning families to the high and low treatment group, this means that on average, the characteristics of the families in the high treatment group are the same as those in the low treatment group. So as you said, randomization helps to avoid selection bias or the fact that some types of families are more likely to participate in parenting programs than others. And these characteristics may also affect their child's outcomes. So by recruiting all eligible families who want to join the program and then randomly assign them to receive either the high or the low treatment, we can compare the effectiveness of providing an intensive parenting program to a less intensive one. So the idea behind randomization is the families are on average the same before the treatment begins. So then if there's any differences during or after the treatment, then these differences can be attributed to the treatment itself and not any underlying differences between the families. Um, so that's how we, that's how randomized control trials address this issue of selection bias. So there's no need for a Heckman selection model in that case? There's no need for a Heckman <laughs> selection model in that case, but there is a need for lots of other uh, statistical methods um, that, that, you know, the trials are not perfect. Sure. There's a high level of internal validity, but you also have to contend with other issues. So, so for example, typically trials have small sample sizes. And most of the statistical methods that we use to compare means are t-tests or chi-square tests. And these are based on large sample uh, assumptions. But when you have a small sample, you shouldn't be using these types of tests. Um, but often people do. So instead, we use what we call permutation-based um, bootstrapping methods, essentially, which helps us address that issue. You know, there's other things like um, often when you're conducting a trial, there's multiple different outcomes, particularly preparing for life is such a holistic trial. We're, we're measuring the effect of the program on children's health, their cognitive development, their social development. So we have so many outcomes at multiple time points. So what that means is just randomly, when we compare the treatment and control group, some of those differences are going to be statistically significant, right? Just randomly, even if it's not really a true effect. So we had to apply methods like the step-down procedure, which tries to adjust what's called this multiple hypothesis testing problem. Um, so one of the advantages of working with Heckman and his team is that they had developed and refined these methods and they allowed us to then apply these methods to this trial. Okay, so that's, uh, that's really interesting for the economists. But for, I suppose, for the layperson that might be interested in thinking about, well, how, how did this go about in practice? So you have maybe a set of, of children who are about to start school and you go out to their homes and you have an intervention there in the home. So so what, what exactly are the, are the interventions? Yeah. 
So that what was quite unique about this program was actually a five-year treatment, and that's incredibly long. So it started during pregnancy, and it continued until the children started school. So as I said, we randomly assigned parents into the high and the low treatment group, and both groups received a low level of services like uh, developmental toys and book packs. But the high treatment group received three intensive parenting supports, and they included a five-year home visiting program, baby massage classes, and the Triple P Positive Parenting Program. So essentially preparing for life is a home visiting program. Every family in the high treatment group had a mentor. The mentor visited the family home once every two weeks on average for five years, starting during pregnancy and continuing until the children were five years old. So the mentors were hired by the preparing for life team. They were trained in the program and they delivered a set curriculum. And this curriculum was based on about 200 different tip sheets. So every time the mentors go into the home, they work through a couple of the different tip sheets around parenting and child development. So the real role of these mentors is to support and educate the parents around um, promoting the children's development and appropriate parenting um, practices. So, for example, during pregnancy, they might focus on you know, preparing for the birth of the child, preparing for breastfeeding. Once the child is born, they might talk about the importance of stimulating your child, you know, eye on eye contact, mutual gaze the importance of touch and the importance of reading to your child and, um, you know, and also what, what types of food you should be feeding your child and um, what types of activity you should be doing with them. It's essentially a parenting course, you know, how you best promote your children's development. Um, so the main treatment, as I said, it was the home visiting program. However, they also took part in baby massage classes in the, when the child was um, in their first year of life. And these baby massage classes will really emphasize the importance of early communication between mothers and fathers and, and children um, and early bonding. Um, and then when the children were two years old, the parents took part in what's called the group triple P program. So small groups of parents came together and within the treatment group, each of the sessions were facilitated by the mentor. And they really worked through about um, appropriate parenting strategies, dealing with discipline and, and things like that. So it was a three pronged treatment. You had the home visits for five years, baby massage for one year and then group triple P in, in the second year as well. So it was a multiple, multiple treatment uh, program. So you have these interventions and you then and then you collect the data on how they perform in school. Is that correct? So how they how to perform against certain measures of, of development and then you run your analysis based on that? Yeah, well, we actually continue to track data throughout the intervention. So we collected about 10 waves of data between pregnancy and age five. So initially we tracked the development of children every six months until they were two years old. And then after that, we collected data every year. Um, and we measured a whole host of outcomes, child outcomes, parent outcomes, environmental outcomes. We assessed the children's cognitive development, social development and their physical and mental health as well. And what was interesting is we actually found no effects in the first two years. So we found that the program had no impact on children's cognitive development or emotional development before the age of two. Now, there were some early effects on health and there were some early changes in parenting behavior. But really, in terms of children's core skills, there was no effects. But after the age of two is when we really started to see the program have an impact. Um, that doesn't mean that the program only started working at age two. It just it can take a long time to see the impact of these types of early interventions. So at age 24 months, 36 months and 48 months, we went back and we assessed the children. And really at the end of the program, when the children were about four and a half years old, we measured their cognitive development using the British ability scales. 
And we found that the children in the high treatment group had significantly better scores across all dimensions than children in the low treatment group. So, for example, in terms of their overall cognitive ability, we found that there was a 10 point difference in the IQ scores of the children in the high treatment group and the low treatment group. Um, and 10 points in an IQ scale is really, really high. You know, it's a very yeah. big difference. And it's quite, it's a lot bigger than are typically found in these programs. And we also found effects on all different types of cognitive ability. So they had better spatial ability, better verbal ability as well. Um, we also found effects then on their, what we call socio-emotional well-being and their behavior. So we found that the children in the high treatment group were less likely to have clinically significant externalizing problems. And externalizing problems are things like aggressive behavior, fighting with other children, things like that. However, the children also had less internalizing behavior, or internalizing difficulties. And internalizing behavior is around you know, shyness, anxiety, depression as well. So it really had an impact on multiple aspects of children's well-being. Oh. And, they, and they were the effects we observed um, at the end of the program. And then last year, we got more funding from um, the Northside Partnership to go back and measure the children now that they're nine years old. So the children finished the intervention when they were five. Um, so now it was great that we got the opportunity to go and see, well, you know, have the effects of th this intervention actually lasted? You know, and we could assess school-based outcomes. So it was a really, really exciting time because often what this literature finds is fade out is that the, the intervention initially works, but then once children start school, in both the high and the low treatment group, you know, the effects can kind of dissipate. Um, so uh, there's a lot of nervous people, <laughs> there's a lot of people yeah. concerned that perhaps this program, maybe, you know, we invested in it and it really worked, but maybe the effects have just disappeared. So there was a lot of anxious people when we were going to, uh, releasing these results. But we actually found that there was a continuity of, what we call a continuity of treatment effects. It means we still were observing effects on children's cognitive development. Um, so we used the same test, the British Ability Scales, um, and we assessed the children's cognitive development, like their spatial development, their verbal ability, their language skills. And we still found that the children in the high treatment group had better scores than the children in the low treatment group. Um, and they were less likely to be scoring below average. They were more likely to be scoring above average. And in terms of that IQ difference, it was eight points, not instead of 10 points. So it's still a significant difference, considering that these children haven't received any additional services or treatments from preparing for life for about five years at this point. Um, so we continue to see those effects. But um, as you probably know, all children in Ireland do tests, national tests in, in, in primary school. They do either what's called the Trumcondra tests or the Micra and Sigma tests. So we were able to access the test scores of the children um, who had already, already done these tests in school. And we compared the high and the low treatment group in terms of their maths tests and their reading tests. And again, we found that the children in the high treatment group had better math scores in second class and third class, and they had better reading scores in second class and third class as well, compared to the children who were in the low treatment group. And because this is a national test, it also means we could compare the Preparing for Life cohort to all other children in Ireland. And we found that the high treatment group are basically scoring equivalent to the average Irish child, while those in the low treatment group are still scoring below average. And this is really important because what it suggested was that the program has actually been effective in if you like, raising the ability scores of the high treatment group, who are an extremely disadvantaged group of children to begin with, to the national average. So essentially, the program was effective at eliminating inequalities in children's cognitive skills. 
One thing that struck me is because of the delay between treatment and effect and the fact that we are often quite myopic as human beings when it comes to making plans, that it might be difficult to plan an intervention without the long timescale that your analysis brings. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we ran this program, even though it was a five-year intervention, obviously it took us two and a half years to recruit the sample. And, you know, basically the entire study lasted um, during the trial, forgetting about the age nine follow-up lasted for close to 10 years and you know we were working with the same implementation team and the same funders and so on and especially in the early days people were very disheartened because we had the mentors who were going in and working in the families homes who could see the small differences that families were making and the small changes that they were making but they still were not seeing you know on our tests differences and that can be quite disheartening and that's why it's so important that you work with an implementation team when you're conducting field experiments that trust in the experiments that believe in it and want to stick with it um and we were really lucky to work with northside partnership and the preparing for life team led by noel kelly who, who stuck with it and our funders like the department of children youth affairs and atlantic philanthropies who, who didn't you know they could have very easily pulled funding after two years if we had found no effects but they didn't they had they were committed to seeing it through to the end and in the end everyone was very happy because we did find effects you know but that's just finding effects is obviously it's great for the children who participated in the program, but it's also important to continue testing because what if we didn't find effects? You know, it's it's important that that research gets out there so we can save other people the bother of trying to go off and do what we did and finding, you know, no effects. It's a waste of resources. So we should always publicize, publicize the positive effects. But it's also really important to publicize the, the nil effects or the negative effects. Okay, so the importance of insignificant effects is definitely a sore point for many economists. Um, But just before we move on from the Preparing for Life study, are there any insights at an individual level that might help parents when they are thinking about preparing their children for school? Well, I think the most important uh, findings really is the importance of early communication between parents and children early reading so reading to your child from um, as early as possible like many people think you know a newborn infant sure they don't understand you know if you show them a book they don't they can't read they, they don't understand what you're doing but it's getting children into that habit of even looking at you know turning pages of a book and looking at colors looking at images and early stimulation um is, is shown to be incredibly important in developing children's brain structure um so probably the one thing most important thing to do is to you know use a lot of different words when you're speaking with your children you know um to the more the more language that they hear even if they can't speak yet you know they're, they're accumulating that in their brain um so early stimulation early communication are probably the most important okay well that is excellent advice indeed um perhaps we can move on to some of your other work uh, if we continue with the theme of today's podcast of well-being but move along the life course to health in adulthood you were involved in an interesting paper assessing the impact of maternal well-being during the t- 2008 recession. What I really liked about that paper was the discussion of impacts on well-being, but some impacts that we don't usually hear about. So you focus on impacts such as how it affects mental health, which you know is something that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. But one impact that didn't really strike me until you mentioned it was that impact of how it affects our opportunity cost of time. Time is no longer as scarce as it once was, and this can have positive health effects, which is really interesting. So perhaps you can tell us a bit about that. Sure. 
So this is a paper that I worked on with one of my PhD students, John Dombriotti, uh, and it recently came out in the journal Economics and Human Biology. And, you know, there's lots of papers out there looking at the impact of recessions more generally, but also looking at the impact of recessions on people's health, but mainly in the context of the U.S., so we, we really want to look at the impact of the 2008 recession on people's health in Ireland, particularly given the scale and the depth of the recession here. Um, and we decided to focus on women and mothers in particular, because literally most, almost all the literature in this field focus on working men, but not women. But we know that women are very much affected by the recession. You know, in Ireland, most women work at least part time. And also during this time, there were significant cuts in welfare payments to families um, during the recession due to austerity so if you like the the overall income in families were being was being reduced and i suppose one of the unique features of this study was we had access to data on the same people measured at three different time points before the recession during the recession and after the recession and this is incredibly you know powerful data to have data on the same people at three different time points as they live through a recession um we also then matched this data um to census data looking at changes in the local unemployment rate in the locality, the local area in which each of the mothers were working in. And then we could use this data to apply what we call a fixed effects panel model. And this allows us to control for any characteristics of the mother that might affect both their health, well-being, and their economic circumstances. So essentially, you were able to look at how um, mother's health was affected by their local labor market um, in terms of unemployment rates, but controlling for all other factors. And in terms of what we expected to find before we began, you know, it's possible that being exposed to higher levels of unemployment can actually have a, either a positive effect on your health or a negative effect on your health. So recessions may have a negative effect on our health, you know, because if we lose our job, we're going to have less money to spend on our health care and less money overall to invest in our health. But actually, recessions could potentially have a positive effect on our health, because if we lose our job, we have more time to invest in our health. So we have more time to prepare food at home. We have more time to spend on exercise. And, you know, essentially that's what we found. We found that increases in the local unemployment rate increased the mother's mental health problems and their reporting of poor physical health. So it definitely had a negative effect on mental and physical health. But we actually found that it had a positive effect on health behaviours. So we found that people who lived in areas with higher levels of unemployment they were more likely to reduce um, their smoking intake or cigarette use, and they were less likely to be obese and overweight as well. Um, interestingly, we also found that the recession caused a reduction in strenuous um, exercise, like going to the gym, but actually it increased the more milder forms of exercise, such as walking, which basically doesn't cost any money. So what we found in the study is that, you know, in the short, the short run, recessions can actually have a positive effect on our health behaviours, but maybe a negative effect on our health. And you know, this is interesting in the current COVID-19 crisis. Um, I think it's, these results are quite applicable to that because you know, unemployment, at least temporary unemployment, you know, it's increased dramatically in recent weeks. And even if many of us haven't lost our jobs, a lot more of us are working from home, which means you know, we're commuting less, we have more time available. Um, and you know, if, if, if the amount of joggers out there and the amount of sourdough posts on Instagram or anything mm -hmm. to go by, um, people are using this time to become healthier because basically the opportunity cost of time is reduced. So for some people, obviously for those who don't get the virus, um, we might actually see an improvement in their health um, because of the virus. But, you know, only time will tell. Well, from my own personal experience, I'm finding a lot more time to exercise when I don't have to commute and have the luxury of working from home. 
Although I've yet to dabble with the sourdough trend. Um, okay, so so maybe we could move on to discuss COVID-19 more directly. You seem to have a knack for unearthing some of the lesser understood effects. You've highlighted the fact that COVID-19 may lead to increasing educational inequalities. Um, this is perhaps related to the effect we were discussing earlier, where some students are better able to reap the benefits of education than others. Perhaps you could outline your thoughts on what might be done the tracks in that regard. Yes. So as, as a researcher who works on inequalities in children's education, you know, the school closures, which were introduced on the 13th of March, immediately made me concerned about the potential inequalities that might arise because of this. So, you know, as I already said, we know that children from poorer households have poorer educational outcomes. And this is because disadvantaged families face financial constraints, um, which means they have less money to invest in their children's education. But also disadvantaged families tend to have lower levels of parental education as well. Um, and then low income families typically have higher levels of stress as well. So as a result, parents from disadvantaged backgrounds typically spend less time and money investing in their children's education in that they tend to provide less stimulating learning materials and less learning experience to their children. And sometimes they may engage in more harsh or permissive parenting styles. And these issues are likely to be exacerbated by the current COVID-19 crisis, as homeschooling is just going to be much more challenging in lower socioeconomic status households. Um, You know, lower SES households may lack physical resources. There may be overcrowding in the home. There may be less desk space. Um, There may be a lack of computers and laptops and iPads. You know, there may be a lack of Wi-Fi as well. So just physically, they may not be able to have the resources to do homeschooling. Um, You know, they may also have more time constraints. So we know that lower SES families are more likely to work in what we now call essential services like retail and healthcare workers. So their parents may just be less available to provide homeschooling to them if they are still working in essential services. Um, There may also be literacy literacy issues. So if their parents left school early at age 16 or before, then the parents might find it hard to engage in the schoolwork that's being sent home by the, the children's teachers. And as you know, just because of COVID, there's just this heightened sense of stress and there's also more health problems. Um, which may make it more hard, difficult for parents and children to engage in schoolwork. You know, and if you're living in households where um, there are other issues, you know, um, you might be concerned about losing your job. You may have lost your job. There may already be financial constraints. You may be living in a more chaotic environment more generally. This just means it's going to be more difficult for children um, living in those circumstances to stay engaged in schoolwork. Um, and, you know, we know that lower or children from lower socioeconomic backgrounds can are at risk of what we call summer drift. So summer drift is this decline in academic skills that are experienced during the summer break. And we only see this among children from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds. Higher SES children, their test scores tend to stay the same before and after the summer because they're typically, you know, they're, they're stimulated during the summer. But often lower SES children may lack that stimulation during the summer periods, which sees a reduction in their skills. And now if the schools remain or stay closed until September, which looks somewhat quite likely, you know, that means six months out of school. And missing six months of school may have a detrimental effect on all children, but it's likely to have a much bigger detrimental effect on children from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Okay. So so when you say summer drift, do you mean just having the break in summer and the lack of stimulation and then when you come back in you're just it's harder to get up to speed because you've had the break is that where that comes in 
yeah you know if if you're not if you're not you know reading you spend like three, you know if you're a child who is going through the process of learning how to read and learning how to write and learning about different subjects you know having a break of three months where you're not engaged in any learning and um, can have a detrimental effect on you many higher SDS children are going to summer camps or they're they're continuing reading or their you know their parents are are you know engaged with them or stimulating them on, on a regular basis um, those children are going to be fine during the summer. Most children are fine during the summer, but the evidence just suggests that children from poorer backgrounds typically do decline in terms of their literacy skills over the summer break. Okay, so uh, and I suppose the effects here, if we were to speculate, there are immediate education effects, but there could be potential long-term effects similar, well, maybe of a different magnitude, but in, in a similar sort of process to what you described earlier. Could that be possible? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the issues, though, is that the scale and duration of the current school closures, it's unprecedented. Like We've never experienced this length or duration of school closures before. So we actually have no evidence on the likely long term impact of school closures. So there's no hard evidence that we can draw from. But there have been a couple of studies done in the US that we might be able to learn some lessons from. So, excuse me, there was one um, paper by Keaton, it was conducted, um, well, the paper came out in 2008, but they studied the impact of school closures in the US in the 1950s in a particular state in the US. Um, Some of the schools closed due to opposition to court-mandated integration of African-American and white children. And the schools were closed for about two years. Um, And the authors were able basically to follow these children into adulthood um, to see what did it have any long-term effect on them. And they found that the children in the affected county didn't actually experience any poor financial health um, or any other negative impacts later in life. So it looks like the schools being closed for two years had no impact. Um, But they did argue that actually this was probably because those children were able to access educational education in in other places in different counties. So I'm not sure if there's much we can draw from that. Um, There was another study conducted by Victor Lavi, and he investigates the impact of differences and the number of hours of instructional instruction time in school across different countries using the PISA data. Um, so different schools, basically in different school, different countries, kids spend different amounts of time in schools. So in some schools they spend much, some countries they spend much longer than in other countries. Um, and he then wanted to look at does this have an impact on children's test scores? And he found that a one-hour increase per week in, of instruction in core subjects increases children's test scores by 0. 0.6, uh, 0.06 of a standard deviation. Um, so basically, when kids spend longer in school, they have higher test scores. Okay, And this is true for all children. However, what was important about his study is that he found that these effects were even larger for children from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds. So spending more time physically in school has a bigger effect on children from lower SES backgrounds. So then if we extrapolate out that to the current COVID crisis, that means that the children um, from more disadvantaged backgrounds may be more impacted by this, uh, by the school closures in terms of their long-term test scores. So it is really interesting. It's insight that perhaps not is not immediately obvious to many. So very interesting to hear that perspective. Perhaps we could wrap up then by looking at another study you did that really struck a chord with me and uh, one that many other empirical economists might like in particular. You quantified uh, the change in well-being arising from the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. So a lot of economists are probably thinking, wow, that's a really cool natural experiment of sorts. And it could be a cool paper, but non-economists are thinking, well, what is that all about? So perhaps uh, you could tell us a bit about where that idea came from 
and exactly uh, what the paper entailed. Sure. Well, I was on sabbatical in Paris in 2017, and I started working with Alina Stancanelli and Andrew Clark on a paper, as you said, looking at the impact of the Boston Marathon bombing on well-being in the US. And, you know, I'd never worked on terrorism before, um, but being in Paris at that time really heightened my awareness of the threat of terrorism because they were having lots of terrorist events or different terrorist incidents at that time. You know, there were a lot more police on the street um, and around public buildings. And people were starting to change their behavior, such as using the metro less frequently. And also, you know, as a runner myself, I really remember the bombing um, at the 2013 Boston Marathon and how it shook um, people around the globe, not only in the US, but, you know, it did have effects, I think, um, throughout throughout the world. Um, and as these major terrorist events um, become much more prevalent in society, we wanted to understand the impact of these terrorist events on people's well-being. So not only the people who are directly affected by the event, but the wider population. And that's basically the motivation behind this study. Okay, so maybe you could take us through the method you used. Um, from my skimming of your paper, I see you used a regression discontinuity design with a few tweaks. Now, I really like the regression discontinuity approach because it's really straightforward. You're essentially, without going into too much, too many technicalities for the layperson, you're comparing the well-being immediately before uh, the shock and well-being immediately afterwards. And any difference then is attributable to the bombing. But perhaps you can take us through that in a bit more detail, especially when it comes to measuring the change in welfare, which seems quite difficult to capture. So we use data from the American Time Use Survey, um, which collected data, which collects a great data source. It collects data on a daily basis for a representative sample of the U.S. population. And we use this survey um, daily data from 2012 and 2013. Um, and as you said, we combined this kind of what's called a regression discontinuity design and a differences and differences design. So two different statistical methods. And this allows us to control for the potential non-randomness of terrorist events, because terrorist events often don't happen randomly. They, they, they plan their events to happen and when it's going to have the biggest impact, like at sporting events. Um, and also to take account of the fact that people's emotions may be different on days of large sporting events. People might be happier, for example, on, on certain days. Um, so as I said, we, we use this RDD design. And what that basically means is, we compared people's well-being in the days before and after the Boston Marathon in 2012, and there was no bombing, to people's well-being in the days before and after the Boston Marathon in 2013, when there was the bombing. So our hypothesis was that if the bombing had an impact on people's well-being, then well-being should be lower in the days following the bombing compared to the days before the bombing, and also compared to the days following the, bar the marathon in the previous year. Essentially, that's the design that, that we used. And in terms of our results, um, we did indeed find evidence that the bombing significantly affected people's well-being. You know, there was a reduction in reports of positive emotions such as happiness, and there was an increase in negative emotions in the days following the bombing. But I guess what was most interesting about this study is that these effects only lasted for one week. Basically, after one week, people just reverted to their normal average emotions. And this is similar to, to some other studies that have been conducted looking at the impact of terrorism on well-being. So people are upset. People are very upset, but for a short period of time, but we habituate and people basically get back to normal, uh, at least in terms of their well-being, um, relatively quickly after these events. And now we did find some evidence of what we call heterogeneity in that some people were more impacted by the bombing than others. 
So, for example, women um, reacted more strongly to the bombing than men. And this is what we would expect as women typically um, ex at least express more emotions compared to men. And um, we also found that those who were living in major urban areas were more negatively impacted by the bombing. And this is not this is what we would expect because most bombings happening in major urban areas. So you might be worried that, you know, um, if you live in a the city, then that increases the probability that there's going to be an attack in your city as well. And we also found that those who live closer to, Bo to Boston um, were more impacted, which is something that you would naturally expect as well. Um, so all our effects essentially were in line with what we would um, have expected. It's really interesting. I, so when I skimmed through the paper, I wasn't, it didn't, wasn't clear to me how the different diff came into play, but it's, com it's filtering out that effect of the positive effect the marathon has, I suppose, on, on, on well-being. Would that be correct? Exactly, exactly. So the, the, the regression discontinuity design, if you were just doing that, you would only use data from 2013 before, immediately before the bombing and immediately after the bombing. But because we combined data from the year before of 2012, before and after the marathon, it allowed us to control out for any effects that the, that the, the marathon might have in terms of people's well-being. So that's why we use this combined approach. So you said that it has a short term effect. Was that short term effect in Boston as well? Were you able to, to, to filter out by, by, by region in terms of the length of the effect? We weren't able to do that. The sample size was too small because this was a national representative data set of, you know, we had data on about uh, 500 people every day. But so, you know, the US is a big place. Like literally we wouldn't have had enough people in Boston alone just to isolate that effect. So we were we, we did look at the counties surrounding Boston and we found that the effect was um, stronger in the counties surrounding Boston. But even at that, the effects didn't last um, too long. OK, um, I think that's pretty much it. Um, thank you, Orla, for uh, no that problem. really insightful uh, discussion. So my thanks to Orla for sharing her insight. If you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word at Irish Econ Pod on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Uh, the website is irishecompod.com and please make sure to tell your friends, uh, share a post on Twitter or other social media and I look forward to talking to you again next week. <laughs>